welcome to another edition of the Branding Podcast. This is actually a very special edition because this is going to be our 2015 year in review. So what I'm going to do is play you some clips from the previous 17 episodes that we recorded this year and give you the highlights from each. Think of it as the best advice from the Branding Podcast all rolled into one. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Now, like we do every episode, I'm going to give a shout out to our listeners coming from all over the world. These were the top cities listening since last episode. Seattle, Washington, number one. Number two, Charlotte, North Carolina. Number three, Tampa, Florida. That makes me feel good. I got some friends around here listening. Number four, Miami, Florida. And number five, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Hey, thank you guys so much for tuning in, for sharing this show with your friends and colleagues and other entrepreneurs that are looking to build their brand and looking to make an impact. So let's get right into it. In episode one of the Branding Podcast, we talked about creating loyal customers. And one of the ways to do that, which you'll hear in this clip, is to actually give your brand some personality and appeal to the emotional side of the brain rather than the logical side. So let's have a listen. And the first thing we want to do is craft our brand's personality around an emotional connection. Modern brand building requires forging strong emotional connections with potential customers and clients. Today's customer, while savvier than ever before, still makes the majority of their purchasing decisions from the emotional brain. Although many pride themselves on making logic-based decisions, in reality, there are very few customers that buy for logical reasons. Think about that last car you bought. You probably didn't buy it because it had more square inches of metal or more leather per dollar spent than its competitor. That's what the logical brain would do. Most likely you bought it for its appearance, for the status it brings, or because it had a particular feature set that you require. How about that last pair of shoes you bought? Did you buy them because of a foam density per square millimeter? You're probably more concerned with the colors, the feel on your feet, the activity they were designed for. You may have even bought them because a professional athlete or a celebrity you admire wears them. In the industrial age, people bought for vastly different reasons than they do in the information age. Many brands are still trying to sell to that logical brain, though. Brands that understand the emotional aspect and how to connect on that level stand a better chance to succeed and crush the competition. So that episode was chocked full of ways to create a loyal customer. You just heard one right there. Now, episode two pretty much followed up on that. So what you'll hear in this clip from episode two is my advice on how you can actually do a needs assessment so you can find out the true needs and desires of your client. And when you find those things out, when you can start to solve problems for your clients before they even know they have a problem, you're going to do a lot better job attracting loyal customers. So deeper emotional connections are highly correlated with needs analysis and solutions. Many times your customer doesn't know what their needs are. They just know there's a problem. You'll know when you're fully in tune, when you can figure it out before they do. You'll find out what they're lacking, what they're missing, without them having to spell it out for you. Customers have multiple needs, so dig deep and find out what the priorities are. You might find that addressing the top need often solves some of those minor ones. Surveys are my favorite way to do this. They're a great way to find out the needs and priorities of your target customer. I'd suggest regularly polling them and asking a few short questions at least quarterly. 
Going further, I'd suggest you keep the questions open-ended rather than trying to steer them in one particular direction. By keeping your questions open-ended, you have limitless possibilities for the way they get answered. You might get really surprised. That translates to deeper realizations and needs you might have never even thought about. Here's an example of a brief survey I use all the time. My first question is, what are the top three challenges you faced last year? My second question is, where do you want to be this time next year? My third question is, what is getting in the way of what you want? My fourth question is, where do you need the most support? And my fifth and final question is, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to see happen? And that last question is really interesting. At least the answers that come back are super interesting. But these five short questions always yield answers that I take back and I brainstorm. When I come back with ideas and solutions to those needs found by carefully studying what was behind those answers, then I close many, many more sales as a result. Okay, so in episode three, we discussed the value of creating a set of core values. In this clip, you're going to hear why your brand should have a set of core values and what you can expect once you put those in place. Core values are something that every great brand has. Even Google, the internet giant, has a set of core values listed on their website. Now, why does Google do that? Why do some of the best brands do that? Because they understand the value of creating a seamless experience for the people that touch their brand. So what I mean by that is they've created a set of values that everyone on their team, all of their staff subscribe to. And this set of core values creates a consistency for the consumer. So anytime you or I call Google, anytime we surf to one of their websites, anytime we interact with their brand, we know what to expect because there is a consistency behind everything they do. And that consistency is developed by these core values. That's why it's so important. A major tenet of good branding is fostering an expectation that becomes a reality. When someone knows what to expect from your brand, they begin to trust your brand. Having a set of principles or core values sets your brand up to deliver on that expectation day in and day out. The best way for a brand to develop these attributes in their employees is by instituting the core values that each team or staff member is held accountable to keep. And accountability, as you'll see, is a major thing to keep in mind. So just having core values is one thing, but actually having a way that you can measure it, that you can keep people accountable within your organization, that's how they actually become dynamic. Now, core values are not created equal. There needs to be some major thought behind what your core values are and come up with a reason for each one. But a good set of core values encourages growth and a healthy work environment within a company. And it also dictates how customers should be treated when coming into contact with a client or a consumer of the products and services. In no way should your core values be directed only to management or solely to lower tier employees. They shouldn't be made only for one division of the company that has to deal with customers or anything like that. It's important that they're instituted company-wide and across the board. Remember, your brand starts from the inside out. So in episode four, we took a look at logo design. And this clip I'm gonna play for you is really just my best advice for creating the perfect logo for your brand. 
Have a listen. A good logo can be drawn by an eight-year-old from memory. That's how simple your logo should be. And I see so many bad designs out there, most of the time because they're too complex. They use multiple fonts, multiple colors. There's just too much going on. A few tips for you. A good logo to me has one or two fonts maximum. So two different typefaces. If there's any more than that, cut it out. And keeping a limited color palette is another tip I'd give you. A good logo to me has maybe between two and four colors. My own logo has four, which I think is actually kind of pushing it. But the reason for that is you have to think about all the different uses that your logo is going to have, from as large as a billboard down to as small as a business card or even smaller, maybe something like a stamp or... Uh, your logo on a pen, a promotional item like that. For instance, on a pen or on a shirt, you can't have eight or ten colors or it would cost you an arm and a leg. So a good logo has a limited color palette, has a limited set of typefaces, and the symbol is generally very, very simple. If you think of some of the most iconic logos again, think of like Target. It's two circles. An eight-year-old could draw those two circles from memory. If you think of Shell, it, it looks like a seashell. Uh, I think of Nike, which is basically a check mark. These are all things that are incredibly simple and they have a limited color palette. All right, so in episode five, we actually started a two-part series that lasted for episodes five and six. And in this series, we talked about ways that you can avoid competing on price alone. Ways that you can actually start making more for what it is that you do. Have a listen to one of those ways here. I like to use Rolex as an example. You buy a Rolex, it could be anywhere from $10,000 and up easily. Or you could buy a Timex that might cost you $25. Now your perceived value when you buy a Rolex is not that it tells better time because a Timex in fact tells better time. It tells more accurate time than a Rolex. But the perceived value is that it comes with a certain amount of esteem or maybe your friends will admire you or you just like the way the watch looks on your wrist or you like the weight. There's other things that are valuable to you and that's why you buy a Rolex watch over a Timex watch. So people buy for all types of reasons, but they almost never buy for price alone. Now, there are a few strategies that I want to share with you that if you can put these into practice in your brand, you'll find that you'll no longer have to compete on price. The first way is really simple, but it's really the hardest thing to do, and that's to be the best. So here I'd like to use the example of Apple. Apple was the best when they released the iPhone. They literally had no competition because they created something more spectacular than anything currently on the market. It had a real internet browser, had GPS mapping, it had a music player, and a phone all rolled into one. No other cellular device boasted such a tool set. They literally cornered the market, and they could charge pretty much whatever they wanted. But as copycats and other competitors came along, things like the Samsung Galaxy or the Google Nexus, their leg up diminished considerably. So that's why being the best is something that you really can't solely rely on. You really have to have some other intangibles that are next on my list. So next on my list in ways that you can avoid competing on price is to add value. The best way that I can explain that is my own car dealership. So my own car dealership actually gives free car washes. Anytime I have a dirty car, I just pull it right up. The valet grabs my keys. In about 10 minutes, they call my name. My car is clean and shining and I can drive away and it costs me nothing. 
And what's really cool about it is that the salesman didn't sell me that service. He actually told me about it after I bought my car. That really blew my mind that they care so much about their own brand that they'll wash their car for free and that it's not even part of the sales conversation. They don't get you to buy a car because they do that service. They just offer that service as an added value. So when my wife was ready to buy a new vehicle, where do you think we bought the next car? Of course, we went right back to that same dealership. That's the power of adding value. It creates loyal customers that not only keep coming back to you, but that tell their friends and family about you. I love that Rolex analogy, and I love using that in a lot of my presentations. But hopefully, that gives you a little taste of why people actually purchase. It's very rarely for reasons of price. If you can add value to what it is you do, you will start to be able to raise your prices in the market. Episode six, as I mentioned before, gave six more ways that you can add value, perceived value for what it is you do. Here's a clip from that episode. Because that's really the goal of branding is to move you away from just being a commodity, from just being someone who trades their time for money, to actually being a brand that has substance, that has value, that people save their money up to spend with you, that people want to tell their friends about you, that want to tell their family about you. So we're going to move right along to number seven on our list, which is provide a useful tool. I'll give you an example. This year, I gave my clients a calendar of all the major events and holidays in 2015. I received a barrage of emails thanking me for it. And not only does this help our clients plan their events, their marketing efforts, instead of waiting to the last minute, but they think of us now when they do that. And if I think about some other brands that do similar things, like Ikea provides a paper measuring tape when you shop at their store. I've seen realtors provide a mortgage calculator on their site. These are all great tools that customers appreciate and they return to use again and again, and it keeps you at the top of their minds. So just think about something that makes sense for your business, something that you can give away that has real value, but cost your customers nothing. And they'll just start to think more about you. They'll start to actually value what you do charge for. So if you want to hear those other 10 ways that you can add value for what it is you do and actually start to begin to charge more, go ahead and check out episodes five and six of the Branding Podcast. Now in episode seven, we changed gears a bit and we talked about ways you can create effective ads. So this was my guide to creating effective ads that convert. And in the clip you're going to hear, I'm going to give you my top tip to creating effective ads. Enjoy. I can't stress enough that the call to action is the single most important part of the ad, and it's all too often a mixed message. You see phone numbers, sometimes two or three of them even, fax lines, web addresses, QR codes, all sorts of things that are competing uh, at the bottom of an ad, competing for someone's attention. And this is quite possibly the worst thing you can do. If you want them to call, provide one phone number and nothing else. If you want them to visit your website, provide that and leave everything else out. If you want them to scan your QR code, make that the focal point, not just something stuffed into the corner. Whatever that action is that you want somebody to do, make sure it is the clearest part of the ad and make sure there's only one action, specific action that you want someone to take. Now, episode eight is probably my favorite episode from 2015. The inspiration for this episode came from a question from a good friend of mine and he asked me, Gabe, what is one piece of branding advice you can give me for starting my new business? 
episode eight was my answer to him. And here is a clip from the show. The most important thing that I can think of when it comes to building a brand is this, to actually get to know who your audience is down to the most minute details and be able to speak to that audience with empathy. In the marketing and branding world, we call this creating an avatar. And what an avatar is, is the one person in the world that you can speak to on their level, that you can understand their desires, their base desires and motivations, and you can understand their pain points, the things that keep them up at night, the things in their life that they need to solve. And if you can solve someone's problems, if you can touch their pain points, you will build a brand champion for life. In episode nine, we discovered a simple tactic to win more clients. That simple tactic is turning people to the emotional side of the brain rather than the logical side, as I had said earlier in some other episodes. But I give you some more concrete advice in episode nine. And one of those pieces of advice is how to create a brand story to actually turn people to the emotional side of their brain, to get them to actually flip that switch. Have a listen to my advice on creating a story for your brand. I wanna give you guys some tips on how you can create your own story for your brand. My first tip would be make sure the story you tell is relevant to your target audience. It can be about you, but in the end, it needs to be about them. So often, we tell stories that are all about us, that are all internal. Make sure that there is something external in the story you tell, something that can resonate with your target audience. My second tip is to be mindful of your tone. So amusing is great if you want your brand to be lighthearted. I think of MailChimp in this regards. Just make sure it aligns with your industry. For instance, lawyers and accountants and those sort of professions, they wouldn't get the same response from humor as, say, a tech company. They would be better served with a more dramatic or historical approach in most cases, I'd say. My third tip, don't be afraid to get personal. People will connect with you more closely if you do, and just don't be too self-righteous or self-glorifying about it, okay? The fourth tip, everyone loves a struggle. If your brand or you as the founder of your brand has faced obstacles and challenges to be overcome, don't be afraid to tell that story. All of the greatest stories have to have an element of conflict in them. Again, that's something instinctual, something that we are drawn to. And my last tip is if you don't have a compelling story to tell, gather up testimonials from your customers or clients. Let them tell the story from their perspective for you. Let them do the storytelling. That's a powerful way. It's called social proof. You've probably heard that term before, but social proof is a powerful way to make connections because they're doing all the work for you. It's not like you're tooting your own horn. Somebody is doing it for you. Now in episode 10, we discussed engaging all five senses. So when someone comes across your brand, you touch them in all five ways possible. There's one way in particular that a lot of people overlook, and that's what we talk about in this clip. Enjoy. So what I want you guys to do is tomorrow when you walk into your business, when you walk into your storefront or you walk into your office, take an inventory of the senses. Write down everything that you taste, touch, smell, hear, and see. And I want you to think about it like an orchestra. 
I want you to think of it as a cohesive sound that's made up by the sum of all those different parts. So they all need to be in pitch, they all need to be in tune in order for that orchestra to sound right, in order for it to resonate properly to the audience. Because that is what we're doing with branding. We're trying to create a cohesive experience for anybody that touches our brand. So here's the inventory that I want you to take. I want you to first breathe in deeply, right? When you cross the doorway, take a deep breath and write down what it is you smell. For instance, is it something citrusy? Is there a fresh scent? Does it give somebody the feeling of freshness, of vitality? Is it a soothing scent? Is it something like a lavender that gets people into a relaxing mood? What is it that your office or your storefront smells like? Write that down first. It's often neglected, but smell is something that really is a powerful motivator for us. And it's something that lingers with us, something that we really remember and hold on to. I'm sure there are people in your life, places that you've walked into and places you've come across, and you just remember it every time you smell it. Every time you smell that same perfume, it reminds you of the person that wore it, right? That's how powerful smell can be. When I was younger, I visited the Philippines, and I remember the smell of the streets. It was a strange odor to me. It was a mixture of um, fish vendors and garbage and sewage and flowers, and it was this weird uh, culmination of something. And I had never smelled it before. And I hadn't been there in about five years, but I went back to the Philippines. And I remember right when I got off the plane, I smelled that smell and it just hit me and it came rushing back to me. And it's just so amazing how smell is tied to memory. And it's amazing how pleasant or unpleasant odors really tie into our emotions and to our first impressions of something. So just think about the smell in your place of work or in your retail location and just make sure it aligns with the feeling and the emotion that you want to give the person interacting with your brand. Now, if you don't believe me and you don't think that this is really worthwhile, just think about Abercrombie & Fitch. I'm sure you've walked past Abercrombie & Fitch in the mall and probably within 50 yards or 100 yards, you actually smelled it before you saw it. And you probably knew what it was before you even saw the sign on the building. That's how powerful smell is. And that's how powerful it can absolutely captivate a person and get them in a particular mood or a particular emotion. It's absolutely incredible. Ah, I can smell the scent of vanilla right now. Just kidding, I'm sitting in my office here in Tampa and there's really not much of a smell in here right now. I probably need to change that. Okay, so we have episodes 11 through 17 coming up right after a message from our sponsor. Hi entrepreneurs, this is Charlie of The Solution Associates. We help companies like yours increase profitability through applied technology and custom software development. We boost productivity by using proven Lean Six Sigma methods of eliminating waste and creating consistent performance. Basically, we turn busy into productive. We work with firms of any size. Just recently, we helped a locksmith here in Tampa save nearly $28,000 a year by finding the right service and customer management program and then showing Casey, the owner, how to configure it to get the most bang for his buck. From consulting services and analysis to custom software development, our team will help you build your business and extract those hidden dollars. So give me a call at 813-984-1836 for a free 15-minute analysis and start finding your hidden money. 
All right, we're back recapping the best of 2015 in the branding podcast. In episode 11, we titled this a shortcut to brand explosion. And what we discussed in this episode were four types of people that if you introduce those people to your brand, you don't have to do so much traditional advertising. It will just catch fire. Three of those people came from Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, and I explained them in detail. And this is where we're going to pick up in this clip. So those are the three kinds of people out there. The connector, the maven, and the salesman. The connector, again, being that person that just knows everybody. The maven being the person that will tell all their friends about you. And the salesman who's just a persuasive person to everyone he comes in contact with. So Gladwell argues, and I agree 100%, that if you can just reach those three types of people, you don't need to reach anyone else. If you reach those three types of people, they will do the rest for you. Now, there's a fourth person out there in the world that I've recognized that can really help make your brand explode. I call that the champion. The champion is someone your brand has touched in a deep and meaningful way. Brand champions come both from within and from the outside of your organization, and they are someone that you help to create. They just might need a little push. Champions will spread your message and connect you to everyone they know because of the impact you made on them. I'd argue these people give you the best kind of brand buzz there is. One way to create a brand champion is by paying it forward. It is truly the law of reciprocity in action. Doing something meaningful for someone else elicits a desire to return that favor. Oftentimes, the person will pay it back in multiples. It's important to remember that champions are created through actions with genuine motivations. People will see right through it if you do it for selfish reasons or if you do it expecting a return. Do good for others and good will come to you. Now, another way to create brand champions is to show them what's in it for them. I've built brand champions who pushed my products and services up the ranks of their corporate ladder of their organization for me because they wanted to be the hero for their company and they wanted to be in the spotlight. It's a natural human desire to want to be recognized, to want to be rewarded. Show people what your product or service will do for them and give them the exclusive. All right, now episode 12 was an episode all about how to create an event around what it is you do. By creating an event, you actually attract more people to you and you develop these people that are really extremely super passionate about what it is you do. So I give you some tips in this episode on how to create an event. And in the clip I'm going to play, I tell the story of a trip I took to upstate New York last year. And what I did during that trip is I visited a place called Mackenzie Child and I bought at Mackenzie Child a $400 teapot. I call it the $400 teapot that I didn't really need. Here's that story. A couple weeks ago, me and my wife were up in the Finger Lakes area of New York. That's the region just right near Canada where it's cold all the time. Just kidding. Uh, but that's the region. Uh, we were about, a, about an hour outside of Syracuse. We were about an hour and a half from Buffalo, New York. So if you can imagine that, that's where we were. It's a beautiful region. There's wineries, beautiful lakes. Um, the leaves were changing because it's fall. And it was just a really, really nice place to be. Well, her aunt has been collecting for the last few years a type of pottery. It's called Mackenzie Child's Pottery. And I saw it all over her house. It was everywhere. There was a, this black and white checkerboard pattern. I kept seeing it. It was on towels. It was in, on the mantle. It was pottery. It was 
the couch was made of this same fa- fabric that had the same material. It was the same. Everything I saw was this black and white pattern. So I asked her about it, and she told us, oh, it's Mackenzie Childs. You haven't heard of Mackenzie Childs? They're famous. Well, then anyway, the next day, we decide that we're going to go visit Mackenzie Childs. And me and my wife and, and her aunt walk into the store. It's a beautiful location, a beautiful setting up on this hill right outside of Aurora, New York. And you walk in and you just get hit by this black and white checkerboard pattern. You see it everywhere. And there's a little room off to the side. So after I browsed through a few of their items, I went into this room on the side. And in this room, they're playing a video. And the video is showing all the care and craftsmanship that goes into a Mackenzie Childs piece. It was really quite astounding. They go into detail about how every piece is hand-painted by the artists. It's fired in these gigantic kilns, and it's hand-embellished, hand-decorated by the artisans in their studio. And it was just a really, really nice video that went on for a while. After that, they actually invited me to a tour of their facility, and you could go back and look at the artisans working on their craft right there. It was pretty spectacular. And that's what I mean by creating events. So instead of it just being a showcase for what they did, instead of just being a store for what they sold, they created an event. So what happened? What happened was I picked out a beautiful piece of pottery. I bought myself a $400 teapot. That's right, a $400 teapot. In fact, if you go to thebrandingpodcast.com, you can see a picture of that teapot in the show notes for this episode. But why did I buy that $400 pot? I bought it because I wanted to be part of the club. I wanted to own a piece of Mackenzie Childs myself. That's what incredible branding does. That's what creating an event does. It creates people who want to have a connection with you. And that's whether they can afford it or not. All right, so we're nearing the home stretch. Here is a clip from episode 13 where we talk about the power of consistency in your brand. Have a listen. There was a time in my life that I was stranded on a desert island. Well, sort of. The reality, it was an island of my own choosing. It was pretty lush and it was pretty damn scenic. I lived on a small island called Sikior in the Philippines. It's a dot on the map if it's even on a map at all. It's the most remote place I've ever been to by a long run. And believe me, I found myself in some pretty strange places. The island is about 63 miles in circumference and is comprised of 80,000 residents or so. On the side of the road, they sold what I like to call green coke. You wouldn't want to drink it, though. It's not Coke at all. It's actually gasoline stored in one-liter Coca-Cola bottles. In fact, there are only a couple of proper gas stations on the whole island, and it was exactly for that reason that I lived there, though. Sikior had no malls, it had no heavy traffic, and it certainly had no fast food joints. The closest island that I would consider civilization was an hour and a half boat ride away. It was a small city called Dumaguete, and it was on another island that was called Negros. Dumaguete sported a lot more congestion, a tiny mall that was actually just one big department store, and the holy grail of the American fast food, McDonald's. My days in Sikior were filled with rice for breakfast, rice for lunch, rice for dinner. The topping might have changed. I might have had chicken or another meat that day, but the presentation was always the same. 
After a few months, my heart would yearn and my stomach would beg for a double cheeseburger and fries. Maybe a chicken nugget or two. But definitely for some non-banana-based ketchup, all the ketchup in the Philippines is made from bananas. It was really sweet and I did not like it. So I would make the trek across the waters of the archipelago for some excuse or another that it was hiding the fact that I really just craved something or just anything American. And guess what? McDonald's came through and it met my expectation every single time. I could argue that it tasted even better than it does here in the States, but I'll just chalk that up to my fiendish desire. The fact is, it tasted the same. Exactly the same. Thousands of miles and decades removed from Ray Kroc's first De Plain, Illinois establishment, it tasted, it looked, it smelled, and it felt precisely the same. It was comforting to me, so far removed from my home that I could just have the same experience I once knew. That's an extreme example, but it illustrates the power that consistency can have on our human emotions. If your brand is going to succeed, you have to be consistent in everything you do. You have to be consistent in your visuals, in your sound, in your office and store environment, in the personnel that you have working for you. Now, in episode 14, we discuss being authentic while being consistent in your brand. So it sort of picks up from the last episode, but it really talks about how you can deliver a customized, unique experience all while standardizing your approach. Have a listen. If you train your staff and team to learn your system of thinking rather than a repetitive set of rules and answers, you're going to give the clients and your customers a much more consistent and much more authentic customer service experience. Now, in sales, it's important to use context. Train yourself and your staff to listen to customers and clients with a fresh set of ears. It's easy to tune out once you hear a trigger phrase. It's beneficial to have a set of standard objections and corresponding responses, but at the very least, try to frame the conversation in the context that makes sense to the client. Try to put your answers in their terminology or their jargon. Try to contextualize the story in a practical way that they can relate to. This isn't easy. This takes practice, but once you get it, your sales process will be that much more consistent. All right, now in episode 15, we began a two-part series covering episodes 15 and 16, and we discussed the seven mistakes that you have to avoid in your marketing. Here's one of those mistakes from episode 15. Mistake number one, not knowing what one customer is worth. Often I come across a struggling brand, and during our discovery session, I ask one simple question. So what's an average customer worth to you? The response that comes out first is rarely the number we reach at the end of the session. Now, usually I get an answer that calculates an average purchasing price. I deal mostly with country clubs, so they'll generally add up the initiation fee and possibly include the monthly dues over the course of one year that their members actually contribute to the club. Now, at that point, I'll ask, in the case of golf and country clubs, if the members occasionally have a meal at the club. Of course, the answer is always yes. Then I'll go on to ask if they ever attend any of the club events. Yes, of course they do. Well, do they ever rent the event space for a wedding or for a party, for a meeting? Then I ask, do they ever bring guests that pay card fees and tennis court fees? Do they ever purchase anything from the pro shop? And all those answers, yes, 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 and yes. So now we're getting somewhere. 
Now we know that one customer, or in this case, one member, is worth a whole lot more than just their dues alone. So then I ask a question that even the sharpest of owners, general managers, and membership directors rarely account for. Do they ever refer their friends? And at this point, I've really got them thinking. Until you have the numbers right on what a customer is actually worth, there's no point in trying to figure out how much you should spend on marketing to them. There's also no way to accurately gauge their impact on your bottom line or to what means you should go to retain them as clients or as customers. So the first action step I want you to take today is to find out what one customer is worth to your brand. So episode 16 picks up from the previous episode and we continue our discussion on mistakes to avoid in your marketing. What you're gonna hear in this clip is one very important piece of advice that I think a lot of entrepreneurs overlook. And our last mistake, mistake number seven, is failing to figure out what the competition is doing better. It's so easy to stand pat and to live in a bubble. It takes some effort to find out what's working at the business down the street. If you're losing customers to your competition, figure out what they're doing better than you. Even if your brand has dynamite sales numbers, you should still find out what you can do better. It's arguably even more important during the good times because you can keep the momentum going and you can start really running laps ahead of your competition. All right, so if you stuck with us, you've made it all the way to episode 17. In episode 17, we talked about the power of the personalized experience. And in the clip you're going to hear, I specifically talked about how to make an ad that you create personal and how to get people to flip the switch just by changing up some of the words that you use and concentrating on certain words in your advertisements. Have a listen and enjoy episode 17. Use words in your advertisements that are emotionally descriptive and in most importantly, really focus on the word you and your. Words like that that you can talk directly to the audience and have them automatically flip that switch in their brain to this is something personal for me. And the easiest way to do that is by using the word you, very simply. So that was the advice from episode 17. And that concludes our year in review of the branding podcast in 2015. If you listened all the way through, thank you so much. And we're doing something special in 2016. We really need your participation to actually come up with the show content. I want to give you what you want to hear. And the best way that I could think of to do that is to create a survey each week on the brandingpodcast.com, the show's website, where you can actually vote for the next episode. So I will start to record episodes based on what content gets the most votes. So if you want to participate, if you want to be heard in 2016, go to the brandingpodcast.com. And while you're there, why not get the free book, The Seven Elements of Highly Effective Ads? It's the guide I wrote for you so that you can start to create ads that are more effective and that win more business for you and your brand. I hope 2016 is an amazing year for you. I hope it's filled with love, joy, and prosperity. Until next year, here's to your success.